have tuned into WERALP Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. I am your host, Fumi Akinusotu, and this is What in the World. It's a time that we all get together to get a better understanding of what's happening outside of the United States and, of course, why it matters to us here. So uh, here in America, we've been immersed in the news of the trade war with China, uh, concerns about China's currency manipulation, China's human rights abuses. China is a very hot topic here in the United States. But across the ocean in Africa, the Chinese have a different kind of relationship and their presence has grown exponentially, particularly over the last several decades. For example, annually, trade between Africa and China has ballooned to $166 billion, $166 billion. China is Africa's largest trading partner. Last year, just at the end of 2018, the Chinese announced a $60 billion financing package for various African countries. And the Chinese, of course, have helped to build railway systems in Kenya and Nigeria. One quarter of all Chinese investments is concentrated in Angola and Nigeria, both of which are oil-rich countries. And the list goes on and on and on about the role of China in Africa. So China's Africa strategy, though, raises a lot of concerns, particularly of the United States and other Western countries, as I mentioned, because of China's track record around human rights abuses. They aren't particularly known uh, to be champions of the many freedoms we enjoy here in the United States, like freedom of speech and religion and so on and so forth. So what I thought I would do is have a conversation with uh, an expert on the ground in Ghana to talk specifically about the role of China in Africa's media landscape. And the reason why I chose media is because media is in everything that we do. Interact with media, whether it's on our phones, on the television, radio. I record this show here at Arlington Independent Media, which is a community radio station. And if you go to our website, you'll see a plethora of subject matter. So the same is true in various countries in Africa where media is a part of their everyday life. So George Saprong is here. Uh, He is a Ghanaian through and through, right? Yes. George um, is a lawyer, a journalist, and recognized industry leader in media and communications policy in Ghana. He currently serves as the executive secretary of Ghana's National Media Commission, which oversees more than 360 radio stations, 80 registered newspapers, 25 television channels, and various online publications. And his job is to ensure free, responsible, pluralistic, and diverse media. And also he addresses any threats that may come to media freedom in Ghana. Um, George is here in the United States as part of the National Endowment for Democracy Fellowship. He'll be here looking overall at Africa's transition from analog to digital broadcasting. And, of course, as it relates to this show, 
um, he'll be looking at the role of Chinese government in facilitating that technological transformation in Africa. Thank you so much, George, for being on the show. Thank you very much. And I'm very happy to be here. Oh, right. Congratulations for the work you do, too. Oh, thank you, George. I, I appreciate it. You all, uh, my guests, make this show worthwhile and all the amazing work that you all do. So we do this um, to start off the show to make sure that our guests know who they're talking to. Uh, so you have a great background in in media. But George, um, tell us a little bit about your, your, your sort of coming up into this space. Like why does media in particular fascinate you? My fascination with media is exactly the point you made, that it is the platform for our public interaction. If all of us understand that we are elements of the same society and we are owners together, then it is important that all of us take part in discussing how to shape that society. And it is the media that provides that public space mm-hmm. for that engagement. Mm-hmm. If you took how our, our leaders emerge in democratic societies, each one of us rarely gets the opportunity to meet any of the candidates. What we know of what they stand for and why we think they represent our interest and can move society forward usually depends on what we learn from them from the media. Mm. And that is why in a democracy, I think that the media is so critical. And that is what fascinates me about it, Mm -hmm. that all of us can contribute to create that public sphere that facilitates engagement between uh, different sectors of the society. And so you've come here to the United States um, as part of the National Endowment for Democracy's fellowship program. What specifically were you looking to accomplish? Like, why did you apply to this program in particular? So my interest started from looking at how the transition from analog television to digital television uh, creates massive opportunities for, you know, expanding opportunities for media pluralism and diversity. But at the same time, the nature of the technology as we are using creates certain difficulties that we need to watch. So just to deal with just one thing, in analog television, a TV station produces their own content and then they carry it by transmission to people's homes. So that's the television station. In Africa now, we are unbundling the value chain between the production of content and the transmission of the content. Mm -hmm. And because of the cost and some technical issues regarding the spectrum, how the signals travel, we are creating just one hub that everybody produces their content and submits to. And then that one hub then transmits the content. So that point then becomes a single point of control. That if somebody takes hold of that, mm. then the right to free expression is completely killed. And so that hub, um, in many ways, um, you said it, so that there's a cost related to owning that hub. Yes. Is that hub something that right now is monitored by the government of, of Ghana or, or, gov- or managed by the government or who owns that hub? So that is what we are in the process of constructing that across Africa. And in all the cases, the government had declared them as monopolies that the government owns. And then increasingly, we are discovering that the government is handing that over to the Chinese, to a particular Chinese mm. company. Okay. So this is how my interest in the involvement of the Chinese companies in the media in Africa and mm. the implications of that, looking at how it has panned out in other areas of the world. Have you experienced something in particular that made you say, you know what, I have to figure out what we're going to do? A number of things. Uh, some directly related, but to the public who don't work on these things every day may not obviously look like that. 
Let me just give you a quick example from Kenya. They had elections in Kenya. The opposition party that lost the election had disputed the conduct of the elections and thought that they had won the elections. So they said that they were going to have a public event that illustrated that they had won the elections. The government did not want that to happen. On the day that the opposition wanted to hold their big press conference, the multiplex platform that handles the digital transmission went off. Okay. It just went off. So this is Without, a device yes. that broke, yes. well, or turned off so, in this case, yeah. Okay. The, the only reason why Kenya and the world got to see what Raila Odinga and his friends were going to do was because Kenya was in, in a system that we call simulcast. That point where you are transiting from analog television to digital, and so you are transmitting in both digital and analog mode. So on the day when they shut down the digital transmission, the analog systems were on. Government people are not technology people. They did not <laughs> let us run. You mean that's the same in uh, Ken- in Kenya as well? That's the same here in the United States? <laughs> well, I will be careful. But at the same time, for most people in America, I think the analogy that works is one of the important debates, in my view, had had here about, say, internet regulation. Yeah. And whether or not... A company like, say, if you took Google Mm -hmm. or any of the big ones, should have the power. To just turn off. Exactly. There are so many examples in South Sudan, in Cameroon, uh, in Uganda, where they turn off the internet when government comes under stress. So when the government controls this platform for television transmission, my fear is that when society comes under stress and the government thinks that they have justification for Uh, attacking free expression. They may do that. And I say that not only about Africa, also because throughout the world, it's been shown that any time you allow government to control the media, they would control it so badly and restrict citizens' access to media and to any public engagement Mm -hmm. if they come under stress. And that is why I think that in your society as Americans, the framers of the Constitution did extremely well in introducing the First Amendment And it seems to me that that is why America has become the beacon for enlightenment when we discuss uh, media freedoms. Mm -hmm. Also because you have had a robust court system that has validated that right Mm -hmm. and is ready to defend it. Mm -hmm. So the court itself has become a major bulwark against any disproportionate encroachment on the right to free expression. That is what we seek to establish in Africa and other parts of the emerging democracies in the world. And also, I mean, I am... Modest and honest to admit, as most Americans do, is that for a society that is in constant evolution, Americans contest their systems, they debate their systems. (laughs) You are never complacent about what you have. And it gets pretty nasty. (laughs) And I I think that that is why the society grows. Mm. I honestly think that within that frustration of what we may describe as nastiness, but I think is the robustness of public debate, Mm. is the kennel for the evolution of further growth of the society. Hmm. So the freedoms that you enjoy today, who, regardless of who you are, if you are a woman and the, how the society is run matters to you, how sanitation, basic issues about child health and all that matter to you, remember that it did not start with Adam. Absolutely. <laughs> if you're a person of color in America and you have rights, remember that those people who fought for those rights 
face the same kind of frustration that you feel with current debate. Mm. And that is what you owe to future generations mm. about your own contribution to sustaining what America stands for, the yeah. big values that has brought you thus far. And that has also provided the enlightenment to the rest of the world. That's encouraging. And I appreciate that. I felt that in my soul when you said that, because sometimes it feels like um, we are going backwards rather than forward. But but I think what I appreciate about what you're saying is that, um, you know, I work out sometimes. Sometimes I work out. <laughs> and in order for you to gain a muscle, the muscle actually has to rip. Good. Right. And so I feel like we're at that That's ripping an excellent point, analogy, right? Yes. We're at that point where the muscle is, it's growing, it's painful, yeah. where it's sore. Yeah. Uh, at some point, though, it'll rip and then yes. another muscle, yes. a better muscle. Yes. Eventually, you're looking like Hulk Hogan. That's right. <laughs> I really love that metaphor. We started a new segment on the show, um, a quiz for our, our guests. And I think it'll be easy for you. Uh, Let's agree that I will score zero so that <laughs> no. if I score one, it is a big boost from, from no regression. No, no, yes. no. Okay, let's go it, ahead. It's also for our listeners as well to learn something. So uh, what, two quick questions. The first is, uh, which African leader is credited with reviving the idea of the African Union? Which African leader is credited with reviving the idea of the African Union? One, was it Olusegun Obasanjo from Nigeria? Was it Ellen Johnson Sirleaf of Liberia? Was it Nelson Mandela of South Africa? Or was it Muammar Gaddafi of Libya? That's a very uh, painful question also <laughs> because the, you, you are connecting a positive outlook to a character. The answer I want to choose mm -hmm creates a dilemma for me. I know. I think that most writers would say Muammar Gaddafi. Yes, that is the correct answer. But and I, 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 I think that we need to put a qualifier quickly there. Let's do it. That we do not think that the, 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 his style of politics mm -hmm. represented the future for Africa. Yeah. And therefore, even though African Union was a good concept, the authoritarianism that he stood for couldn't have been the way forward for Africa. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I struggled the same thing when I learned that. I was like... Oh, the one that America basically deposed and yes. then killed and we yeah. accused of all sorts of things also created this uh, assembly yes. of African nations. But the, but the, as, like, as you said, everything is rooted in something. And the African Union, uh, though it began fairly recently in 2002, it actually has its roots to your home country of Ghana, um, has its roots back in 1958 during the first conference of independent African states. And that later, that organization later morphed into what is what was known as the Organization of African Unity, the OAU, which then became the African Union. Yeah. So Gaddafi, for all of his um, problematic pol politics, um, is one point in a very long points, very, very long trajectory of history um, dating back to the 50s. So you got the answer right, even though I know it brings you a little bit of pain. Thank you for <laughs> pushing Thank through. Thank you very much for this. <laughs> and giving it's us that, one. <laughs> that, that parenthetical note about uh, Gaddafi. Um, so my second question, not as difficult, I don't think it is. So which country is known to have the best jollof rice on the continent? Oh, of course, that's obviously Ghana. Oh, my. You didn't even let me have that. Give you no, no, no. Don't waste your breath. That is Ghana. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I have never, ever, ever 
been like, I completely, you know, am at odds with a guest. But today, <laughs> I must tell you that we are. And if you don't, if you're not familiar with Jalof Wars, Google it. But uh, my answer is Nigeria for obvious reasons. We'll just end it there. We'll end it there. I'll have to go to Ghana and taste for myself this this situation you, you say um, is the best. But. but just quickly so that our guests also know how interconnected we are in West Africa. My grandfather, my paternal mm-hmm. grandfather is Yoruba from Nigeria. Hey. <laughs> so the Yoruba did not answer that last question. <laughs> All right. So let's get to the meat of, of this topic here. First, just give us a quick background. Some, you know, a lot of us don't, uh, when we hear about China, it's always mostly negative um, in the United States. Um, we don't often get the, the high level overview of what's going on, the context, as we say, of China. So why has China's presence accelerated in Africa. Why? I, in my view, three quick things. One is is a confluence of things. We are at a stage in the life of Africa where our people are becoming more and more enlightened and are therefore becoming, uh, uh, making redeemable uh, demands on political authorities. And as we democratize, public opinion is beginning to matter. And the public measure governments by their ability to deliver public resources. That requires resources, money, to do. And so our governments are in search for money. Partly also because we have a big problem with corruption on the continent, and so so indigenous resources are unable to address the problem. Truth though be told, even if we address the issue of corruption, there will still be a deficit in funding. There will be gaps. Now, this is the period also where Western, our Western democracies and our Western friends are increasingly retreating, particularly the United States, from Africa. So these are the two important contextual issues. Mm-hmm. That The third factor then is that with the rapid growth in uh, China, China is seeking ways to expand across the world. So it is leveraging on the needs in Africa and the retrenchment of America and its allies from uh, engagement in Africa to take advantage of the situation. In my view, this is why yeah. China's influence in Africa is accelerating at okay. this pace. And it's very reminiscent of when we think about Europe. Yes. <laughs> right? Uh, so uh, for our listeners, hopefully you know a little bit about uh, European and African history. But in short, uh, the Berlin Conference of 1886 is what created the various countries of Africa as we see it today. And the reason why Europe was there to begin with was resources. The one thing I would I, I not disagree with, but I cringe whenever I hear people even in my own family say this. Um when people say, you know, Africa doesn't have the financial resources, I actually think that Africa does have the financial resources because because if you look at all of the political leaders, many of them have, and I won't name any, but we, we know that they have exorbitant amount of excess, like where they live, their children come to study in America and in Europe. And so I feel like it's not that there aren't enough resources those resources are just not being used the way they should. How can a country like Nigeria, again, with all of its oil, a sad one. right? All of its oil being pumped out, sold, oil coming out of your own country, then being resold to you, 
and then the money goes to how many families or how many people, right? So the resource they're making money, but it's just not being used to build the roads, to build the bridges. I completely agree with you. That's where I have a small point of disagreement. But I I don't dispute that fact. I don't dispute that at all. But the, there are levels of analysis that we can look at the issue. Uh, you speak of two things. The actual resources, that is what we have exploited and commuted into usable resources that they are abusing. Then you also hint at the natural resources that we have not exploited, or those that we have allowed all manner of interesting groups to exploit. And it all comes back to the same point that you make about leadership. And I think that I won't dispute that fact. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair enough. Don't You don't have to agree with me, George. <laughs> I, I, you, know, you know me too well not to know that. Okay. Once we have started... We have started on the biggest uh, dispute between us, which is the Jollof. You should know that <laughs> I can stand my grounds. Okay. What other industries um, are of interest to China in terms of Africa? What other industries maybe that we haven't talked about? I think the Chinese strategy is defined by two things. Whatever gives them money, but also whatever gives them control. They are also looking at services like power and energy that fuel the economy. And so they are the ones building all the big power plants across Africa. They are the ones building the big ports. And notice that whoever controls your port of entry controls your life. Hmm. Whoever controls your point of entry controls your life. It's like the one who holds the key to your house. Can come in at any point. Exactly. Hmm. And so... They have been very strategic in which areas of the economy they hold. And they have done it all across our countries. In Africa, anything that happens to Nigeria, and this I must painfully admit, <laughs> anything that happens to Nigeria can happen to any other country, regardless of who you are. It's our strongest country in terms of resources. It's our strongest country in terms of intellectual power. It's our strongest country in terms of population. Mm-hmm. So anything that can happen to Nigeria, painfully, can happen to everybody. So when you make reference to what they are doing in Nigeria, it should tell you that nobody has a defense against China. Mm. Everybody is vulnerable. But again, Nigeria's best sister is Ghana, and that it's the better part of Nigeria. Oh my goodness, George! (laughs) And if it happens to Nigeria and it happens to Ghana, Mm. that's it. Take note Mm. that Africa is going. Hmm. If you begin to see that South Africa is gone, what is left is very little. Then you see that Kenya is gone. The hub of East Africa is gone. Right. So increasingly, those nations that will revolve our political life in terms of the examples for successful democratization that we see, those that we look up to in terms of economic development, in all of them are coming under the authority of China then all of us need to begin to be concerned. To be concerned. You take a country like Zambia, you mentioned Angola. Mm-hmm. It is not hidden. It's direct. Okay. And just for the purpose of our listeners, to understand that we are not talking about some abstract politics, let me just give you a few basic examples that concern people. In Ghana recently, a young man called Peter Frempong, working for a Chinese plastic company, 
got stabbed by his boss. His boss was Chinese. Yes, Chinese. And it emerges that it's a very regular practice in some of those small businesses of Chinese. And because of the political relationship between our politicians and the Chinese authorities, Ghanaian authorities feel restrained. This is the argument the public is making. We have a situation where in rural communities, Chinese uh, illegal miners are destroying people's farms, destroying water bodies, and you know that a large segment of our people in the rural communities rely on these water bodies, mm -hmm. raw water from the rivers for drinking. They are mining in these rivers. So the people don't have access. Right. And the local police feel powerless. Mm -hmm. Local politicians feel powerless. Mm -hmm. yeah. That is the kind of problem that we are talking about. The danger, though, is that if we are not very careful and we don't manage this well, there could be some kind of reaction that would be backward in terms of the public beginning to attack or fight the Chinese. And that would be completely wrong and unacceptable because... All of us should hold to certain basic principles that every one of us, anywhere in the world where you find yourself, must feel safe. And that there should be no discrimination in terms of the um, respect that we express towards human dignity. Mm -hmm. So if there is a, a Chinese in Ghana, no matter the circumstance of that person's life, the person should be protected. Correct. And if anybody disagrees with what the person is doing, must subject him or her to the processes of the law. But where public systems break down and the people think that they have no uh, official recourse to addressing their problems, the tendency to resort to unorthodox methods is very high. And that is what I have been particularly worried about. Mm. Because we may get to a point where the people could very easily conflate mm -hmm. their disapproval of the Chinese government activities in Africa with the presence of ordinary Chinese. Yeah. I want to go back to the many examples you talked about. Uh, well, mainly you said Nigeria. If Nigeria and Ghana are having issues, then it's a problem. It's something for us to complain about. The African Union, which was part of our, our quiz here, um, the African Union set out a 50-year agenda to transform Africa into the social, economic, political powerhouse it should be. So by 2063, they've laid out several goals that various African countries, the African Union, should have accomplished. And what role then is the Union, the African Union, supposed to be playing to make sure that relationships with China don't um, impede on the growth of Africa? This is the difficulty of the AU and the individual member countries. The AU does not have power over the foreign policy of individual mm. nations. Mm. And the relationship with China is constructed along the line of the foreign policies of these countries. And so all the arrangements are bilateral between individual countries and China. And I'm happy that you already lead the conversation that way. So if you look at, say, Western Europe and North America, so include America, include Canada. These are strong economies, strong democracies, each one of them strong enough to stand on their own, but coming into some kind of alliance, sometimes with diverse interests, 
sometimes converge interests, but each able to go their way, each having their own attitude towards, let's say, China. In the case of Africa, the only reason why we are discussing this problem as Africa-wide is that almost every one of our nations has already submitted to China mm. or submitting. So to the extent that the continental body is a union of these same states, their attitude can't be different from what each of the member countries is doing with China. Okay, because it's the same government going to China, dealing with China, who formed the union. And that is why I strongly feel that I'm a strong believer in the African Union. I'm a strong believer in Agenda 2063. But I also strongly believe that civil society needs to help our government. So ordinary people. Exactly. Mm. And it is for both of us, those of us at home, uh, our brothers and sisters in the diaspora, our friends uh, from abroad who are interested, one, in the continent for its sake, and two, uh, interested in it because of uh, expanding democracy around the world. And even if it is for their own narrow self-enlightened mm -hmm. self-interest, it seems to me that all of us need to work together to help our government to understand that. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is important to deal with anybody who has some legitimate support to offer Africa. But we need to construct this in a way so that in the end, everybody would win. Mm -hmm. It is possible to have a win-win arrangement with anybody, including China. Now, so I, I read an article uh, from Al Jazeera that says why Africa loves China. Um, so just to... Uh, you know, bring in a different perspective here, a lot of um, publications or people, writers, have said, you know, look, um, America, the Europe, they're just upset that, you know, China is another player here. It, with China, at least there's, quote-unquote, mutual understanding, mutual benefit. Um, with China, there's a respect of, of the African way of doing things, African values, African people. The article that I read specifically cited uh, colonization and said that, you know, what's different is that Africans actually get a say-so in what uh, the Chinese are doing because African leaders, to your point, are able to go directly to China and say, this is what we want. China brings their money, their resources to the table, which is different than colonization, whereby the Europeans were the only ones at the table who carved out Africa and basically imperialized uh, many countries. So what would you say to someone who is arguing or whose argument is that actually it is a win-win and African leaders are capable of uh, managing themselves amongst uh, the Chinese. I, I think that those who make that kind of argument, again, are confusing a number of things. And let's try to unpack it for the sake of our friends who are not too familiar with Africa. When people like that make references to Africa, they deliberately bury the politics under the politicians. Okay. It is not true that the relationship between China and Africa is on equal footing and that it's a win-win arrangement. If you see any one of the agreements that we have signed, Africa is on the losing end of it. So we are seeing issues in Djibouti, we are seeing cases in Kenya and other parts of East Africa where they completely mortgage national assets and resources. 
and because they are unable to pay the loans that the Chinese gave to them without any proper assessment of the conditions under which those loans were given. Mm. So in some cases, it turns out to be a very corrupting influence. They are giving you the money. They are taking over your resources. In most cases, they're giving the money under circumstances that are almost corrupt, knowing that you invariably won't be able to pay back. To pay back. Bumi, if you give money to politicians, if you are interested, somebody's interested in your, say, port, the biggest port in a country, which, let us say, would ordinarily be valued at, for purposes of the discussion, say, 1 billion USD. They are giving you a 100 million loan, and the guarantee for that loan is that port, control over that port, which is 1 billion. And they give the money to you without going through any due diligence processes to see that you would be able to build the road you are talking about. So you are asking for 100 million to build one road, <laughs> okay? But you are mortgaging that against your port, and the, the value of the port is one billion. billion. So China is interested in making sure that you fail in your ability to Because you'll never be able to pay so, that money back. Exactly, yeah. and that is what is. The difference between what Western nations had done with Africa in terms of grants and support was that they had insisted on value for money and to say, these are the conditions under which we release the money. That is what politically they had referred to as conditionalities and made it to look like it is something terrible. Mm -hmm. It appears to me that for purposes of good governance, we needed that in Africa. Mm -hmm. But let us come to the question of colonization. There are no two ways about the fact that colonization was bad. There is no two ways about the fact that it still constitutes a scar on the conscience of the world. There is no two ways that any nation that participated in anything that colonization brought, whether in the end it, it related to slavery or the mass shipment of resources from Africa or the denigration of the people and their resources, it is unacceptable and we can't defend it anywhere. We need to put that on the table directly. However, history teaches us that there are nations that have gone out of the domination of others, regrouped themselves, okay, and showed themselves on the way to enlightenment. Let us just point to two examples. America, as we have it today, had to fight England to secure its freedom. You understand? Absolutely. England itself, that dominated America, that America had to fight for 100 years, from 1066 to 1166, was under the dominion of the French. Correct. You understand? There's no justification for what happened to us in Africa. Mm -hmm. But the English, after their 100 years of domination, were able to build themselves up again to the extent that they could colonize America. Yeah. And Africa. <laughs> you understand? <laughs> yes, correct. And America, after all that England did to it, could fight itself out of that dominion, okay, to become the biggest global power. So there's still opportunity if we put aside the pain of the past and recognize that we can still forge ahead new relationships, new sense of respect, new sense of mutual understanding mm. into the future. Correct. We could still build the future together. Mm -hmm. So those people who seek to tie the past so strongly to our future, in my view, seek to manipulate 
our deep-seated anger mm. and sentiment for sure. for sure against people that we can build partnership with, with. today for, sure. for our future growth. And that is why those who relate colonization to the problems that we are having with China today, in my view, are not doing the kind of analysis that leads to the absolute truth about the Africa and China relationship. Mm -hmm. That's well put. I'm not going to argue with that. Even I think I've forgiven you with your jalaf. Oh, come that. on. <laughs> I want us, we, we don't have a lot of time, so I want us to talk about, you know, the media infrastructure of Ghana. And you've already explained to us very nicely about how Ghana has a, a hub, essentially, that produce or that sort of distributes all of the content, right, that goes out into the homes of those in Ghana. So I don't want to get too, too technical, technical because we don't want to um, confuse people. But what are the major government entities managing media and media freedom in Ghana currently? So we, our constitution created an independent national media commission, which is where I work. And the commission has a board of 18 members representing different stakeholders. The Journalist Association, the Broadcasters Association, women's groups, Christian groups, Muslim groups, very diverse. And then the President of the Republic has two nominees. Amongst the eight, and the President has only two. So there's an overwhelming majority against the President. Then Parliament, minority in Parliament have one representative, the majority in Parliament have two representatives. And this organization is uh, the one that is in charge of media regulation. But there's an aspect of media, which is this, the frequency upon which we transmit. Mm -hmm. So as we are sitting here talking, what sends the signals or the message to people's radio is the frequency. Mm -hmm. That is managed by a different organization called the National Communications Authority. And that's a government-owned entity? Yes, that is, that is uh, fully under the Ministry of Communications. Okay, so they regulate... Or they just manage the frequency? They manage the frequency. Okay. But they regulate in terms of the technical parameters. So frequencies are, let's say, uh, measured in distances. If you were broadcasting in D.C., there are rules that would make us not to be heard in Boston. Got it. If there were no rules, we could actually, as much as our equipment could go, we could broadcast as Wide, as, wide as far as we want. Okay. But because these are uh, managed resources, mm -hmm. they make sure that one does not uh, interfere with, the, with other, the other. And that's their work. So who actually regulates content? So the like, National Media Commission. Okay. So because here, like, for example, we're not allowed to curse on this show for a reason because we're regulated by an entity that says you cannot curse on the radio so or on certain types of media. Yes. So the commission that you sit on, that you head, regulates the content. Yes. So the problem, the concern comes in when we're trying to push out this content. We have to get to this hub that you talk about yes. that is now managed by, man, I don't know if that's the right word, managed or controlled by the Chinese. Yes. Okay. So who allows then the Chinese to manage that space? The government. So the, they, the, they purchase it? Yes. So the, the, in Ghana, they are, we are in the, what I'm discussing with you it's an emerging issue. It is it's something that is happening. So across our countries, we are still in the process of building that infrastructure that enables us to transition from analog to digital. Right. So most of the countries are doing some more cast now, doing a bit of analog transmission, doing a bit of uh, digital transmission. 
as they try to complete the platforms. Okay. So in Ghana, we are about 90% through. But the facility was... It, there's, there's also a story about it. First, the contract to build the infrastructure was given to a Chinese company called Star Times. Then the government terminated the contract on grounds that Star Times could not perform the terms of the contract. Star Times sued the government and lost at the Ghanaian court, and then it took the matter to international arbitration. Then that administration that was in a tussle with them lost elections, so there was a new administration. The new administration has reinstated the contract, and there is debate over the circumstances under which uh, this was done. So an entity outside of Ghana has allowed the Chinese to continue with their contract? No. So the, the international arbitration did not even conclude. The new elected president of Ghana. Oh, got and it. The new administration that came to the conclusion that they are re-awarding the contract to the Chinese again. This is at a, at a time where at least the Ghana Independent Broadcasters Association are alleging that the Ghanaian company that had the original contract mm-hmm. had almost completed their work. So people are alleging that the Chinese government is leaning on the government of Ghana heavily to take over. And it appears that people close to government have made uh, comments suggesting that this could be true. Interestingly, three years before this issue happened, a small newspaper that is close to the then administration, called the Al-Hajj newspaper, had published that the Chinese government, the CCP, Chinese Communist Party, was not happy with the termination of the Star Times contract Mm -hmm. and had threatened to withdraw loan facilities that they had granted government. Nobody paid attention to that publication mm. until the new administration came in and they reinstated the contract. Mm. And then this generated the controversy. As of the time I was leaving Ghana last September, it was a live matter that, has, as I speak to you, mm. is not resolved. So that is the kind of challenge I see. that we see around their construction and management of the platforms and the involvement of the Chinese because Ghana is not the only place that times is operating. At my last count, there were at least 21 countries in Africa mm-hmm. that were dealing with the same, not like the Chinese generally, but the same Chinese company called Star Times. Mm-hmm. The same company that the large newspaper was alleging that the Chinese government was backing very strongly, strongly yep. in their case in Ghana. Got it. Is the Chinese sort of influencing the messaging, so to speak, directly? Or is it coming through, say, a newspaper or a radio station or television? Is is it that direct or is it more subtle where um, there are African or Ghanaian-owned media outlets that are backed by Chinese businesses? Factor here. So those the the scenario. As I've just explained, their biggest involvement in the media in Ghana is emerging through the digital signal distribution platform they are building. Mm. So until that is done, we cannot tell exactly what their influence is going Mm. to be. Mm -hmm. But related to that is um, a contract that the government of Ghana has signed, again with the same start times. The Chinese government is doing a project, I think it's titled the 100,000 Villages Project or something. Under this project, the Chinese Communist Party is providing access to a certain number of rural communities in Africa. And it is this start time that is implementing the project. All that it means 
is that they are going to provide facilities to them, including television sets and mm-hmm. electricity and all, to enable them to watch content from China. From China. Wow. So they'll actually be able, so they're providing the equipment, so the televisions, maybe phones or whatever. Yeah. So then maybe the Chinese, so that Ghanaian residents can watch Chinese films, exactly. videos. And is the reverse happening? Is is Ghanaian no. content being pushed out to... No. China, no. Okay. And then there are other parts of Africa where they are directly involved in, you know, sponsoring newspapers, doing training for journalists. They are doing some kind of orientation for journalists. They take the journalists to China for uh-huh. what they describe as training. Mm. I'm hearing allegations across the continent that most of them who return uh, come with a new attitude of subservience that the Chinese hold very dear to uh, journalism. An attitude attitude, of subservience. Exactly, because uh, that that is the way we will treat it. But they describe it as development-oriented journalism and that the, the kind of media that we have in Western democracies and the new democracies around the world, including Africa, is adversarial, hmm. and that they think that the best way to organize society is to mobilize all resources behind political authorities to enable them achieve their agenda, and that should include the media. And so the media should support government in its development which agenda. Is, which is sort of at the crux of uh, communist thinking. So, I mean, I, I think that in the language of most Americans, that would be propaganda. Propaganda, absolutely. Yeah. So they're providing training, they're providing... It sounds like access to information yes. via equipment, yeah. Chinese um, shows or content. And in the case of Africa, I also think that there's major commercial value behind that. And this is how. If they are able to make the Chinese content very popular, it will affect viewership of local content it will ultimately kill our local media the most dominant media that will be available then would be the chinese control so no more nollywood so (laughs) what would happen is that if the chinese are abusing rights in africa there will be no independent media to report on that yes and that's an angle all of us need to look at so any decision that they take regarding the media in Africa, especially as they are pushing their investment in Africa, we should also understand that they are bringing their media to protect their interests. And if they, they, there is any uh, anti-competitive behavior they can put up to kill the media industry in Africa, mm-hmm. they will do that to mute Mm. Uh, criticism against the Chinese Communist Party and its activities in Africa. But can I just um, play devil's advocate here? Um, I know, for example, that American media exists in very in many African countries. You can watch the Cosby Show. You can watch The Simpsons. You can, when I went to Nigeria, my little cousins were watching The Simpsons, which I thought was hilarious, right? Um, and, you know, again, along the lines of dem- democratic values, we support through our financial uh, through USAID and many other programs, we support institutions in African countries and Latin American countries all over the world that promote democracy. So I guess my part of me is wondering, you know, should we, I mean, are they doing anything that's, they're not doing anything brand new. So why should we actually be concerned? So let's, let's show the difference. I don't know on which channels you were watching Cosby Show and The Simpsons. <laughs> 
But in most African countries, I could bet you that this would be a local television station that through syndication arrangements is carrying content from America okay. and running on their channels. Got it. So these won't be American government sponsored television channels. I see. Backed by American taxpayer money. Mm. Competing with local television. Got it. Okay. So these would be Nigerian television companies that see commercial value in, in American, American content, content. Which they purchase from a company exactly. from NBC, ABC, not exactly. the American government itself. Exactly. And so there is no political messaging in that. Got it. And the company has the right to select and choose which content to buy from America or anywhere else. Got it. That's the difference between what you are describing and the scenario from the from, Chinese. From Chinese. Okay. Yeah. All right. Why is this topic relevant to the listener? It's only because we are all in one simple search for a peaceful, democratic society wherever we live that guarantees us a dignity and a dignified life, regardless of wherever we are. So whether you are in America, you are in Ghana, in Nigeria, wherever you are, freedom around the world should matter to you. Understand that if you are in America and the values you hold dear in America is not shared by anybody else, then those values have no protection anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And that is why any encroachment on human freedom and democracy around the world should matter to you. Mm -hmm. The growth of authoritarian society anywhere is a threat to democratic society anywhere. Mm -hmm. And that is why it seems to me that any time issues like somebody taking over the space for the expansion of democracy anywhere in the world, it should matter to the average American because all of us are in this together. Mm -hmm. This is not to sow fear. America takes on major causes on behalf of the world, but that also makes America an enemy of those who do not share those values. What that means is that if we don't expand democracy around the world, mm -hmm. then we are creating too many enclaves from which authoritarian states can attack America from. And that is why every American should show a bit of interest in what we are talking about. And they should question us and interrogate us, as you have done. Also to be sure that we are not selling empty fear when we talk about rising authoritarianism anywhere. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, there is only one global world that all of us share. Mm -hmm. And the protection of that world should matter to all of us. To all of us. Beautifully said. Thank you so much for that, George. Um, if you are interested in following George and the work that he is doing, you can go to the National Endowment for Democracy's website, ned.org, or you could just Google George, which is what I did. <laughs> you can just, oh, I see. You could just Google George um, Asabhang and, and look him up. And I'll also leave notes um, on my website at whatintheworldpodcast.com. And to that, 
Um, you can find other episodes where we talked about Africa last year around this time and trade between the United States and Africa and AGOA. If you haven't listened, be sure you can, again, go to whatintheworldpodcast.com. Follow me on social media, on Twitter and on Facebook um, under What in the World Pod, um, on Instagram as well. And you can see all of our uh, previous shows that have a similar tone um, about it in terms of understanding just why we should care about democracy. If that's your thing, if that's not, if democracy is not your thing, I really don't, I'm not sure I, that I can help you, but hopefully it is. <laughs> so, so take a look at uh, my website. So George, one of my favorite parts are, it is my favorite part of the show um, that I love to do with the guest is, you know, making sure when we talk about these very heavy emotional issues that we also leave a little bit of room for fun. And I ask every guest to give me a song that keeps them in a good mood. What is your song? Heal the World, Michael Jackson. All right. Heal the world. Uh, yes. <laughs> Make it a There's better a place. place. So enjoy you this. You could sing it to oh, a song for no, me. No, no, I'll stick to making jollof rice. I'll stick to making jollof why, why is this song, song for you important? I think you should bring the jollof rice here for us to taste. <laughs> Is that a challenge? Yes. What? You're gonna lose. No, there's going to be only one jollof rice to be tested. Yours. You should bring the Ghana because I'm sure it won't heal my stomach. I'm, I'm sure nobody else would want to would, try my cooking. Oh cookie. my gosh! Why is "Heal the World" your song? It's exactly the concern that we are discussing. Again, that all of us have a responsibility to create a better world for each one of us, for our generation and the generations to come. A recognition that whatever we are enjoying today is as a result of the hard work of others before us, and therefore we owe a responsibility to our own selves and to those kind to create a better world. All right. Beautifully said again. You're just full of beautiful quotes. Thank you. Not beautiful jollof rice, but beautiful quotes. <laughs> <laughs> thank you all for listening, George. Thank you for coming and spending this time for us. This has been What in the World. Thank you very much for If we try, we shall see. In this bliss we cannot feel. There are dreams. Stop existing and start living.